0: Well, at uh, at present, you don't really have to read uh, or watch the news, do you, for very long before seeing some article on some kind of leader or leadership, particularly with Brexit around at the moment, and certainly Mr Trump grabbing the headlines. And it can, really, Donald Trump make America great again. You know, can Theresa May steer a divided nation through Brexit, Will she unite a nation behind her? Well, we'll find out, I guess, in a very short period of time. Many are unsure she'll even survive trying. I mean, it's probably a sweet stake. How many days she's got left? Um, you know, could anyone do that? It's interesting, isn't it? The great promise of the Bible, throughout the Bible, is that God will unite people. He will unite a people for Himself and from all nations and it was a promise seeded right back in the garden of eden right back at the beginning of the bible and it was going kind to of spelt out in a promise that god made a covenant that he made uh, in genesis 12 to abraham and we see a glimmer an echo of that promise today in that last verse of the passage that you've just been uh, read to has been, just been read to you look at verse 21 we see that in his name the nations all the ethnic groups will put Their hope. God has promised a people from all nations to be united under Him. And you kind of say, well, who's going to lead us to that? Who could possibly do that when you look around at the world today? Trump? (laughs) May? What kind of a leader can unite a disparate uh, group of nations in this world? Who could lead, in a sense, a, a true commonwealth? Uh, the ultimate league of nations here. Yeah. Who could lead the perfect united nations? Because look at verse 21. It looks like a great plan. But history tells us that no leader is willing or capable. And so does, does God really... Kind of make promises that he can't keep. In his name, the nations will put their hope. (coughs) Well, you see, the great promise of the Bible is that God will. He will fulfill this promise. He will provide a leader who will unite us and he will bring peace and the nations will put their hope in him, fulfilling all of the promises that God has made. But the question is who is the leader? Well what Matthew is going to show us today quoting from Isaiah he's is going to show us that Jesus is God's leader he's as we look at down your outline i've put a few points there he's God's chosen servant and he's God's herald to the nations and he operates in God's way a kind of clue that he is God's leader and he offers hope hope to the nations of the world now, oh, uh, just a bit of context, if we can. We've been looking at just these few chapters in Matthew's Gospel. And they sit within a section of Matthew's Gospel, kind of chapter 11 to 13. And it's interesting, if you've come today and you've kind of got the Bible open, maybe the first time for a while, you're probably thinking, well, I'm examining God a little bit here today. That's what we're doing, isn't it? We come to church, we gonna kind of open up the Bible, we are examining God. Well, can I just say, I want you to flip that round in your mind today. Because really what these chapters do, quite uniquely, is quite the opposite. God is examining you, me. Jesus is examining humanity here. Particularly our response to him, as we've seen. And we've seen a number of people respond to him. It's John the Baptist and the Pharisees. Questions have been asked. and, And Matthew is showing us here how Jesus responds to humanity. Especially those Who reject him. And as we'll see today, to reject Jesus is a pathway in life that should not be desired. People who reject Jesus are not left alone. And their decision to reject Jesus, however kind of subtle and British a way we do it, and however polite and charming we are, if we choose to reject Jesus, that rejection is not left unchallenged. But as our passage begins today, look at down at verse 15, if you may. You could be forgiven for thinking that Jesus could not possibly be the leader of verse 21 that is promised. I mean, look at the actions of this leader in verse 15. How can he possibly be the one who will unite nations under God? Look what this apparent great leader does. Verse 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him. He healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. At opening point, he withdrew, he healed and he warned. Just look back, just one verse to verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14. There's the contest. Look, Look what's happening. The Pharisees have been rocked by Jesus and now what they're doing is they're plotting to kill him. And what do you expect greatness to do? If someone's plotting to kill you, a great leader, what do they do? They come out fighting. That's what you expect. You expect him to smash the Pharisees down with some divine karate kick, whatever that is. You know, with a threat of being killed, what does a great leader do? What we see here is Jesus, he withdrew. A crowd followed him. He healed many and then warned them to keep quiet about it. Can that really be the great leader that God has promised to fulfil his promises, to unite nations under him? See, many world leaders under of threat, they press a button. They'd order an attack. And then they'd probably tweet about how great they were and so on. Uh, but Matthew wants us to see in verse 15 and 16, well, these are exactly the things that we should expect from God's leader. And that's why he quotes. He quotes from Isaiah 42. If you see that, we see he wants, he wants us to show that Jesus is exactly God's man in fulfilment of the prophet Isaiah. He says that in verse 17, doesn't it? And as I said, this is from Isaiah 42, back in the Old Testament, written 700 years before Jesus came. And this is the longest Old Testament quote in the whole of Matthew's gospel, which is saying something because Matthew quotes the Old Testament a lot. And Matthew's kind of saying, you know, if if you don't believe me, let's let's have a look back and see that Jesus is really God's promised leader. Look, and he's kind of going, hey, look, Isaiah proves it. That's why he quotes Isaiah 42 here. I I was trying to think of an illustration to show what he's doing here. Isaiah is like the Hawkeye, okay? You know what Hawkeye is? If you watch a tennis at the summer, you know, you get Hawkeye, which kind of Sees whether the ball is in or out. You know, the the umpire calls out if it's close and so on. The computer programmer Hawkeye kind of comes in and the camera goes. And and essentially Hawkeye provides the irrefutable evidence. And Isaiah is being kind of called in on here by Matthew as that evidence. He's the expert witness. He's the professional pundit, if you like, who uh, provides analysis Isaiah, no, I'm not going to say he's a management consultant. That's pushing the illustration way too far. But, um, you know, you see the point. He's coming in. He's the expert witness. And Isaiah writes God's words 700 years before Jesus and is now called by Matthew to help us see that Jesus, the Jesus of verse 15 and 16 is, he really is God's leader. To fulfil his promises of bringing hope to all the nations of the world, what we're seeing here is something so, in a sense, supernatural in many ways. Something it's so stunningly divine. The evidence has been there for all to see, but now Matthew is kind of spelling it out and showing them: yes, Jesus is God's chosen servant, and that's our first main point. Jesus is God's. Chosen servant. Look at the quote from Isaiah 42. He says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. Let's look at some of that language very quickly. Look what he says here, literally, behold there, my servant. And Isaiah is very interesting, taking some words there from Psalm 89, 89 verse 3, if you want to look at it later. Let me quote it to you. It says, you said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. The chosen one language there. I have sworn to David my servant. See, that servant language is language that describes God's anointed king, David, in Psalm 89. But now God speaks through Isaiah the prophet and points to a servant king. That will come, a chosen king that will be enthroned forever. And what does God think of this king? Look at it the one I love, the one in whom I delight. He's God's beloved. And that is a title that's so rarely used in the Old Testament. It's firstly used uh, back in Genesis of Isaac, but it crops up occasionally to describe those who God will who use to fulfill his promises through. God also delights in him. That is, this leader will never, ever disappoint you. I don't know, do you you know a leader that at some point hasn't let you down? Every leader, every leader at some point, even you, and many of you are bosses here, you'll have let your people down at some point. But God says of this servant leader that he delights in him. He would never be disappointed by him. And Matthew is claiming here, by quoting Isaiah 42, that Jesus is that servant leader in whom God delights. And he's going to show us now uh, that Jesus fits and sets all the criteria that come of that servant leader following. And the question for us is, do we believe Matthew? Do we really want to put our hopes in this? God's chosen servant leader, Jesus. Whatever you think of uh, someone like Theresa May, great leaders can only achieve so much, can't they? They may do some good, but I think we're all kind of aware that we're never going to put our eternal hopes in someone like that. Whether it's a parent, whether it's a a boss at work, whatever you do, we're not going to put our eternal hopes in those people. Do you trust anyone with your eternity? Well, Matthew is pointing us back to the Old Testament here and showing us that the servant king of Isaiah 42 makes sense of the man stood before them. It makes sense of his teaching and his performing of miracles. See, the historic evidence, the facts of what Jesus was saying and doing makes sense. They're explained in Jesus being this Servant king of Isaiah 42. Now Matthew continues and makes that point clearer. as He, he shows us Jesus' work and the way that he works. The way he operates, if you like. Look at verse uh, halfway through verse 18. God says through Isaiah, I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A second point. Jesus is God's herald to the nations. See, Matthew here wants us uh, to show wants to show us that Jesus is God's promised servant king. Evidence, though, in Him doing God's work, and what is that work? It is to proclaim, to proclaim justice to the nations. That word justice is really interesting, and we've got to be careful that we we understand it. And it's a word that is used elsewhere, but it it kind of summary. In summary, it means. God's authoritative, settled judgment. All right, if you can, picture a courtroom. You know, the whole trial has been heard, and, and when that judge and the, the, the hammer comes down, the gavel comes down, the judgment is calmly declared. The evidence has been weighed and it's been fairly considered. And now the judgment is made, it is settled. And it comes with the authority of the judge. Well, God's servant king would come, his his work, empowered, as we see, by the spirit of God, would be to proclaim to the nations God's authoritative, settled judgment. Context of Isaiah 42 really helps us in understanding that picture of God's authoritative settled judgment. Uh, if you think of the back at the beginning of chapter 41 of Isaiah, there God is making clear to the world what he thinks of them. He makes clear of what he thinks about the nations uh, around, and then later on in chapter 42, he makes clear what he thinks about the, the leaders of God's people. He declares his authoritative settled judgments. And Matthew is showing us Jesus. He's been doing that. He's done it through his teaching. If you were to go back in, in Matthew's gospel, it comes in sections. And you get chapters 5 to se- uh, 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. There in his teaching, he's been teaching God's authoritative settled judgment. And, and then he's been demonstrating his power to be that judge in the miracles of chapters 8 through to 10. And now in chapter 11 to 13, he is proclaiming that. What God reveals through Isaiah in this picture of God's servant king has come to be in Jesus. And the problem is, the Pharisees just couldn't see. And they should have been able to. The Pharisees are the experts in God's law, the teachers of the time. And if they were a tick-box list, you know, if they had a clipboard out with their Sharpie pen, they were going down, here's the criteria of kind of God's servant leader, and there's Jesus before them, they should be able to tick every single box. But in their arrogance, they were absolutely blind to the evidence that stood right before them. And Isaiah 42 paints a picture of God's chosen servant leader and the Pharisees They just think they know better. They know better than God himself. That's what they're saying in their hard-heartedness and their religious hypocrisy that's being exposed. Jesus proclaims God's justice, his authoritatively settled judgment on the world. I don't want to get all spooky about this, but I do want you to realise that God will examine Every single one of us, and his verdict will be final, and his verdict will be eternal. I don't know if you saw that um, in the news this week. There was a lovely article came up on BBC, and uh, it was of this eighteen-year-old boy. Did you see anyone see that? He was just passed his driving test. Wonderful story. There he was. He's just passed his driving test. He's on his way home from passing his driving test, his mates are in the back of the car and he's driving through a village in the middle of Germany and he's clocked with a laser gun going over twice the speed limit, which means the, under German law that he loses his driving license. And the police officer who caught him and wrote a statement about this says, some things last forever, others not for an hour. I love that. This kid had 48 minutes and then his driving license was removed from him. Well, we are in God's sights, if you like. We cannot get away. And his judgment will last forever. Jesus has come to proclaim that justice. And it's your job and your delight to open your ears and your hearts to it. And respond appropriately. And if that wasn't enough to convince us that Jesus truly is God's chosen servant, King, Matthew now shows us look at the third point that Jesus operates in God's way. He is God's man because he operates like God. Look at it, verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets. You see the contrast? He doesn't, you know, we look at the, the leaders of the world, isn't it? provocatively tweet, he doesn't need a press officer, does he, to kind of sort out all these kind of quarrels. There's no kind of fake news slurs here. God's servant, Jesus, operates as he came, meekly, with gentleness. He doesn't cry out with kind of rejection and injustice, he simply offers himself, he, he offers his loving servant leadership. And as we saw at the end of chapter 11, he says, come to me. If you are weary and burdened spiritually, come to me, Jesus says. And there you will find rest. The rest that your whole life you've been longing for. And if people choose to reject his love and authority in a settled and an authoritative manner, he will judge them. But that's in a sense giving them exactly what they want. If you reject Jesus for the whole of your life, he will give you what you want. You've said you don't want anything to do with him, and he'll give you that for eternity. And you will only know his justice and not his love. In a sense, we see a wonderful picture here. If you reject Jesus, what will he do? He will just, in a sense, quietly move on. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Well, leaders of the world might flex their muscles to show their power and authority with political kind of maneuvering and military might. Jesus, God's servant king, doesn't need to. He comes quietly with authority and he will move away with quiet authority too. But it's not all those kind of power and authority issues. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. I don't want to bore you, but one of my favourite places in the world is, is, is down in Cornwall. I've oh, i thought mentioned it a lot of times, but uh, as we walk down to the beach every day, I've done every year of my life, and we walk down this beautiful little country lane. It's one of those typical kind of Cornish country lanes with the high hedgerows and the wildflowers growing and the, and the long grasses growing up on the side as well. And I think you know every year, every time I go down, still, still today, ridiculous, isn't it? I always pick a bit of grass. You know, one of those long bits of grass. You know, peel it off a bit and stick in my mouth, or throw it at one of the boys, or whip one of the boys. You know, whatever. Yeah, I just play with a lovely bit of grass. It's one of the things you do, isn't it? It's just a simple reed of grass. It's totally disposable. I just chuck it away at the end as I get to the beach. It's worth nothing. What Jesus cares for you, you broken reed. However, you know lowly you feel about yourself, He cares for you. When you get to the end of your Christmas meal, I guess many of us will have little candles on the table, yeah. And you know you get to it and the end, and it's all kind of melted down, and you've got that tiny little wick, haven't you? That withered wick of the candle. It's worth nothing. What do you do? You chuck it away. Well, Jesus, the servant King, will take that smouldering wick, and he will not snuff it out, and he will not throw it away. Rather, he will breathe his life-giving Spirit into it and revive it. Are you that smouldering wick? Do you see what's been saying said here? We've got these religious elite over here. They're plotting to kill Jesus. They think of him as a fraud and a nuisance. But Jesus is exposing their unbelief and hypocrisy. Pronouncing, if you like, God's settled authoritative judgment on them. And anyone who rejects him, he proclaims and he quietly moves on. The question is, how will we respond? Have you come to Jesus Have you admitted to him and before him and in your own heart, probably in mind, that you are weary and you are burdened spiritually? Have you rested, as we saw last week, in his mercy, in his kindness towards you and his sacrifice in your place? Or do you think that that is below you? Do you think it just doesn't apply to you? Well, if that is you, please be warned. Because Jesus will one day, when it's too late, just quietly move on. I wonder what kind of king you feel you need. Because Jesus takes up the broken reed and the smouldering wick. And if you're anything like me, you feel like both. He has all authority and power. Not over just the present, but for eternity to come. Oh, the Pharisees, yes, they're plotting to kill Jesus. Yeah, and history shows us, doesn't it? If you flip on a few chapters, that yes, they got their way. He's arrested, Jesus is, on a trumped up charge. And they crucify him like a criminal on a cross. They killed him and they crush him. This so-called great servant leader of God. They kill him. It's all over, they think. They've got what they wanted. Or did they? What the Pharisees didn't foresee, they should have known. This is one servant song which Matthew is quoting, but there's another. It's in Isaiah 53, and Isaiah 53, 11 says this of God's servant, Jesus who stood before them. Yes, they might have killed him. But this is what Isaiah foretold of God's servant. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. That is Jesus. And in taking on the punishment our sins deserve, God's servant, Jesus, will make us right with God. We have the opportunity to be justified through faith in him, made right with God. If we just put our faith in Jesus and God's servant, King Jesus, will take up you, the broken reed, The smouldering wick, till we see in verse 20, he has brought justice through to victory. God's settled, authoritative judgment is placed not on you and not on me if we put our faith in this servant king. Instead, God's authoritative, settled judgment is placed on King Jesus on the cross. But because he saw the light of life, because he rose again from the dead, historically verified, he won victory over death. So the point of this whole section is, listen to him, come to him, weary and burdened as you are, and rest in the victory that he has won. And that is why Jesus is the leader you can trust, with your life now and every day to come. Because as our last point, he offers hope to the nations Look at verse 21. In his name, the nations will put their hope in Jesus's powerful name. We have our hope secured because he is one victory over the judgment that we deserve for our sin. That is just our rebellion against God, our rejection of God. He's come to serve that Bruce reed and that smouldering wick and any who would trust in God's servant king. And in a sense, do you realise that we sit here, Christians, we sit here today as evidence that verse 21 is true. The nations truly have put their trust in King Jesus. There's people here from the United Kingdom, America today. uh, We've got people from South Africa, Russia, Zimbabwe, Canada. I'm sure there are many, many other nations. Australia, I think, as well. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian though, yes, it's great that you're here. Please listen. Please ask your questions. But there is evidence all around you. Yes, we're a funny bunch of people. I'm not denying that. But we're also walking evidence that God is faithful. He is faithful to his promises through God's servant leader, King Jesus. The nations of the world truly have put their hope in Jesus. Despite all the persecution that Christians face, despite so many things, we stand as evidence that God is faithful to his promises. So we've seen Jesus is God's chosen servant. Jesus is God's herald to the nations. Jesus operates in God's way. Jesus offers hope to the nations. And if he is that, and if he has rescued you, you bruised reed, you smouldering wick, if you have come to him, weary and burdened as you are and found your ultimate rest in him I want you to see how should you respond how should that make you feel surely your heart should be utterly melted and to the degree that you understand and delight in and fear God's servant king well that will surely determine how you live and serve and honour and speak of him I know it's scary speaking about our faith in this secular culture. You know, inviting neighbours. You know, we've got these little cards. You think, how am I possibly going to invite a neighbour or a friend to a carol service in now three or four weeks' time? I know. It's scary. It's even petrifying, isn't it? And I know we all try and justify in our own way, kind of saying, oh, someone else will do that and that'll be okay and it'll be fine. no. The people around you on your road, ask yourself, who else? Who else is going to warn them of God's settled, authoritative judgment on their lives? Who else? Who else is going to give them the opportunity to hear of God's chosen servant, King? who is willing to take on himself the justice that you deserve. So what kind of leader can unite the disparate nations of this world? The answer is God's suffering servant king of Isaiah 42. Who is that? His name is Jesus. And he's come for bruised reeds and smouldering wicks like you and me. So come to him weary and burdened and find your ultimate rest in him let's pray